Good afternoon and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine's Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. With the holiday season upon us, it's time to talk seafood. Fresh, sustainable Maine seafood, that is. For the next three episodes of Coastal Conversations, we're featuring a series of stories produced by the First Coast and the Island Institute. The series, called From the Sea Up, introduces the people and species that make Maine seafood so incredible, both for our taste buds and for our coastal economy. It's perfect listening to inspire your holiday feasts. So first up today, we hear how Luke's Lobster and the Island Institute formed a creative partnership to build resilience in the seafood supply chain in the wake of the pandemic's early shutdown of traditional seafood markets. Our second story today explores the freshness and flavor of Maine dayboat scallops that have been caught, sold, and eaten or frozen in less than 24 hours. These are inspiring stories about people in the Gulf of Maine who are finding ways to ensure the future of our oceans while diversifying our seafood economy. We'll save all the credits for the end of the show because there are a lot of people behind these great stories and we're grateful to all of them for sharing them with Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Now, let's let Galen Koch, the producer of From the Sea Up, take it from here. The Island Institute presents From the Sea Up. Stories of sustainability from Maine's coastal and island communities. I'm your host and the producer of this series, Galen Koch. As I speak these words to you from my at-home recording studio, my closet, on Portland's East End, it's August 2021. The COVID-19 pandemic continues to challenge and stress our communities, even as more and more Mainers are vaccinated and we see glimmers of hope and normalcy. The pandemic is far from over, and a year and a half in, the reality that COVID could be with us for a very long time is, for me, just starting to sink in. In all of the tumult and loss in the past 17 months, some vulnerabilities in the way we live our lives emerged. Specifically for Maine's island and coastal communities, the vulnerabilities in the marine economy and seafood supply chain became glaringly clear. The word sustainability really took on a different meaning in the past year and a half. When I think about that word now and reflect on the events of March 2020 and the following months, it becomes, for me, something more expansive. Sustainability is not only about the environment, but about the people, communities, work, and culture in Maine. 
As the fragile balance of the marine economy unraveled along our coast, community and business leaders came up with strategies and innovations to strengthen a system that was, even before the pandemic, subject to wild fluctuations and uncertainties. As part of this limited series focusing on sustainable seafood in Maine, I'm going to tell you the story of one of those businesses, Luke's Lobster. And I'm going to tell you the stories of the people in Maine's seafood industry, fishermen and harvesters and policymakers and business owners who are working to diversify Maine's fisheries and strengthen our marine economy. In this episode, we start at the beginning of our story, not in March 2020 or with the COVID-19 pandemic, but rather, this story starts with a friendship. A friendship between Luke Holden, co-founder and CEO of Luke's Lobster, and Rob Snyder, the Island Institute's former president from 2002 to 2021. Here's Rob. It's interesting. I actually remember hearing about Luke's and wanting to meet Luke when I was working with a group of ground fishermen that had formed their own organization called the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. And there was an anniversary party for that organization that took place in Tenants Harbor. And that was going to be the first chance I had to have a chance to say hello and meet Luke, because I knew Luke uh, was involved with some of the fishermen involved there. There is already a story growing on the coast of Maine that, that somebody from Maine had started this food truck business in New York and was figuring out how to bring more value to Maine fishermen by going direct to consumers in New York. Let's pause for a moment. Why would the president of a community-focused organization, like the Island Institute, be so excited to meet and potentially work with the co-founder of a seafood restaurant? Well, it all comes back to the lobster roll. In order to create a great product, the perfect lobster roll, Luke's Lobster needed, you guessed it, great lobster. And the company had to figure out how to get Maine lobster from fishermen's boats over the wharves and to consumers who might be eating it days, weeks, or months later. Maybe it seems like I'm stating the obvious, but the truth is getting lobster picked and packed and shipped all around the world is a complex task, especially if you're trying to maintain the integrity and reputation of Maine seafood. If you're in Singapore or Okinawa or Boston and you're eating a lobster roll from a Luke's food truck or shack, you may not realize just how much thought and consideration went into it. A lot of people who've only seen Luke's as a shack in Manhattan think that we're just kind of a group of restaurants and, and like another seafood restaurant, we might just pick up the phone and call a distributor when we need more seafood. This is Ben Conniff. He's the co-founder and chief innovation officer at Luke's Lobster. We're totally vertically integrated, so we buy live lobster directly from fishermen at harbors up and down the coast. We bring it to our own facility. We go through the excruciating detail process of you know separating, steaming, picking, packing, and transporting that seafood. So we have complete quality control, but we also have a direct connection to fishermen and their communities and to the coastal environment. And I think, you know, that's really what differentiates us from other seafood restaurants is the direct connection, the knowledge that we have of every single step that our seafood takes when it comes out of the ocean. A lot of consumers want to know where their food comes from, right down to who caught it or grew it and what port or farm it came from. 
Where I live in Portland, Maine, it's not uncommon for restaurants to hold themselves to a similar standard on a very local scale. Even when we started, when we had one shack, Luke's father was operating a seafood production company where he was buying direct from fishermen. So, you know, Luke being a third generation fisherman and just having these decades of experience in this industry compiled from his father Jeff and now Luke, it means that we are able to do a better job for our guests by just getting them better seafood and also just do better by our fishermen. Since opening its first shacks in 2013, Luke's Lobster has taken those ethics of traceability and accountability to a monumental scale, supplying their own shacks in 10 U.S. states, Japan, and Singapore. The company has also created a line of flash-frozen lobster and crab products to sell in grocery stores nationwide. And so, when Rob Snyder, the Island Institute's former president of 18 years, heard about Luke's Lobster and their direct support of fishermen and the ethics of the business, he knew he wanted to meet Luke Holden. And the feeling was mutual. Here's Luke, co-founder and CEO of Luke's Lobster. I've always been an admirer of the work that the Island Institute has done, especially given that they've had such a, uh, a leadership role in, in leading these coastal communities towards challenges that, that ultimately they often are not focusing on because, because they're not there yet. The challenges are coming in five or 10 years um, down the road. So growing up in this state, loving this state, um, I was always uh, aware um, and an admirer of the Allen Institute. And maybe like five years ago, uh, Rob and I met and you know we had a, f- a few drinks uh, went for a few uh, cross-country runs started to develop a a working relationship. From where I was sitting, you know, and kind of always wanting to build relationships as an organization with people who are kind of might know what the future economy could look like or how to participate in it as a, as a business on the coast of Maine. I was really intrigued that, and not just intrigued, but like excited that somebody was taking these risks and trying new things out because that's not always the story of fisheries in Maine. The friendship between Luke and Rob allowed for these collaborations to take shape, and it's emblematic of a certain community-focused culture here in Maine, a culture in which work and friendship and passion for the state and its people are all tangled up together. For two organizations to work well together, there has to be some shared values too, and and that really resonated as like, these are... I feel like this is, these are people we could all get to know and like and trust. And, and that's kind of fundamental to the kind of partnerships we're looking for. And, but, you know, knowing Luke and um, knowing myself, you know, fun is, a, is an important part of the equation. Hey, hey Luke, uh, I'm in New York. Oh, me too. I've got a <laughs> 510 Delta flight. Well, I'm on the 940 Delta flight. Great, I'll change my flight. Where are you? <laughs> We do have fun, we do it with great people, and you can treat people the way you'd like to be treated um, and, and make long-term decisions. You kind of find that you put yourselves in situations where a rise of tide raises all boats, and, and that's, that's really been fun, and that's what makes Maine so special, too. It's just such a small community that um, when you start to put the good actors together, um, there's a lot of really good synergies and a lot of fun to be had. The friendship between Rob and Luke is where this story begins. 
But it wasn't until March 2020 that a more formal, intentional partnership began to form between the for-profit business and the nonprofit organization. Of course, that was the beginning of the COVID-19 lockdowns here in the United States. Here's Luke. Rob just gave me a call as a kind of a check-in. Just said, hey, how are you doing? You know, I, I, I know that um, you've got businesses that, that are in these major urban cities that, that are ultimately hyper-affected by COVID. Um, in many cases, uh, uh, mandated shutdowns across hospitality sectors um, are ongoing. So, you know, what's going on? How are you doing? How's your family doing? How's your team doing? And I, I just was honest with them. It was, it was not good. You know, we, as a, as a, as a business, we're very seasonal. So we, we, we survive the winter and spring in order to kind of refill the financial coffers um, each summer. And, and we were at the end of our rope there. Um, COVID had caused the, um, the Asian markets to, to shut down um, and really cause a disruption in the lobster industry a few months before it came really, before COVID became a real big issue in the States. So we had um, major issues with, with our inventory being upside down. And, and I just said, you know, we're, we're, we're one of the stronger players in this industry and we're in trouble. Um, and that gives me a lot of fear for, for what could and likely will come for the rest of the seafood businesses up and down the coast. In the U.S., more than 70% of seafood is consumed in restaurants. More than 70%. So the COVID lockdown was a gigantic, monumental, mega issue for fishermen, dealers, and processors in the state. Not only did Luke's shacks and restaurants close, but there was also, virtually, no other market to sell to. So with no restaurants to sell to, lobstermen had nowhere to offload their catch. According to NOAA Fisheries' COVID-19 impact assessment, in the Northeast, lobster landings revenue fell by $28 million in April and May 2020. And of course, other fisheries were affected too. The scallop industry in the Northeast, both dayboat and tripboat scallops, was down $56 million at that time. The Island Institute works on a small, local scale and works directly with businesses to find innovative solutions to complex problems. But the sheer scale of economic devastation in spring 2020 was difficult to deal with. So that was really frustrating for an organization that kind of likes to work at a small scale and try to find, you know, people who are really pushing hard for the future in their towns and, in, and, and their jobs. And so that left us feeling a little bit helpless and we were doing our best to help out, but it didn't feel kind of substantial enough. And then, you know, the, the number of hits that I was seeing the seafood industry take, whether it was the China tariffs that were, that were in place, the loss of EU market as EU shut down ahead of time, and, um, you know, uh, recognizing just, you know, cruise ships, casinos, restaurants, like, where was this product going to go? And also knowing that the Canadians fish first and that they might have a chance to move their stuff and we might not have a chance to move ours was like, there was just this incredible mess. And I couldn't imagine how kind of, five, you know, 5% of our state's economy is seafood. And, 
you know, most of that is lobster. So how are we going to, is there anything that you could do about that? The light bulbs quickly connected on like how, how bad this could be if, if we couldn't figure out how to ultimately build some durability within the supply, the seafood supply chain, and particularly in the lobster, lobster sector. And so in that context, you kind of start thinking, who are the people who've been really innovative and tried to diversify their own market presence? And like, what are they thinking? What Luke, Ben, and the team at Luke's Lobster were thinking was that they needed to find a way to get seafood from the ocean, off the docks, and into the mouths and kitchens of consumers. The seafood supply chain was broken, but Luke's Lobster had the capacity to flash freeze, pack, and ship seafood. They usually did so for their own restaurants and grocery store products, and typically sold just lobster and Jonah crab, but with the dire circumstances of the pandemic came a lot of innovation. Here's Ben Conniff. So we started an online market. A couple of amazing members of our team basically researched it, built it from scratch, got it up and running by the end of March, which, you know, COVID really shut things down in mid-March. So it was extremely quick. And as soon as we started selling our lobster and crab products, we were hearing from fishermen that, you know, what about the scallops that I'm going out to, to drag this year? What about the halibut that I'm going to catch or the bluefin tuna I'm going to catch and then you know we realized it was beyond just the fishermen that we already worked with for lobster it was up and down the coast you know people who were catching or farming sustainable seafood that would not have a home because so much of the seafood that's consumed in America is consumed in restaurants. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org. Today, we're featuring a couple of stories from the Island Institute podcast series called From the Sea Up, highlighting sustainable Maine seafood and the people who work hard to bring it to our plates despite the challenges of the pandemic. Please note that today's show was pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls. Now, back to the story about Maine seafood. One of the greatest challenges of starting an online seafood market is that many Americans do not actually know what to do with seafood. Sure, you might be able to boil a lobster, especially if you live or summer in Maine, or maybe pansy or salmon, but do you know how to prepare monkfish or halibut at home? Do you know how to properly unthaw a pack of flash frozen dayboat scallops? The team at Luke's knew that they had the capacity to prepare, pack, and ship products directly from fishermen to consumers. But would we, the American eater, know what to do with them? So we took it upon ourselves um, to start trying to educate consumers about how they might actually prepare this seafood at home instead of relying on chefs at restaurants to do it for them. Um, That's where we wound up partnering with Island Institute, who worked with us to go out and start this project and get funding for this project to demystify all these different types of sustainable seafood and help us buy those from fishermen, make sure they got used, make sure they didn't go to waste or fishermen didn't have to keep their boats at the dock, and then create the content that's needed for our customers to really feel comfortable buying cooking and serving that seafood to themselves and their families. 
For Rob Snyder at the Island Institute, introducing more of Maine's sustainably caught or harvested seafood into the homes of consumers not only supports Maine fishermen, but helps support the oceans, too. There's a challenge that seafood globally has really been struggling with, and that is kind of point of origin traceability from diverse sources on a global scale. And if you can build a trusted platform that can reach into various kinds of species, um, you're creating a greater opportunity to get transparency from the harvester to the consumer when you're working with a vertically integrated company that's got that commitment as part of its DNA. And that, I mean, fundamentally is probably the biggest driver of our ocean species depletion in the world is this kind of lack of transparency in the supply chain. And Luke's commitment to that and this platform's ability to tap into various species and help create that transparency in the supply chain um, really set, shows a way forward for a really systemic problem in global seafood. There is an ever-growing desire among American consumers to eat food that supports a healthier planet, or at least doesn't destroy it. Some folks choose to stop eating red meat or go vegan or eat as much local food as they can. When it comes to seafood, your most sustainable option is to eat a diversity of species from sustainable fisheries sold by companies who trace and verify the catch. On Luke's e-commerce site, you can buy halibut, tuna, monkfish, and other ground fish species like hake and haddock, kelp, eel, unagi, and dayboat scallops, in addition to crab and lobster. Here's Ben Conniff. For the supply chain and for the products that we sell, diversification to the extent of everyone in Maine just not relying entirely on lobster for our economy, you know, for our business, for the fishermen's income, their ability to go out and also catch scallops, farm kelp, uh, catch finfish, that is going to give them resiliency as well. So the ability to have multiple products, multiple species, all sustainable, that we can turn to as a way to make a living. Uh, that's critical to the coastal economy. And I think because the online market allows us to support more of those products that we couldn't squeeze into our tiny shacks in our various cities, that means this online market is going to be even more helpful to keep coastal communities strong. And with the help of the Island Institute, and this podcast, Luke's Lobster hopes to educate consumers on what seafood is sustainably caught and how to prepare it. Here's Luke Holden. But it's like really, really a neat opportunity to, to, to then figure out where the ancillary opportunities are within these, within these fishing communities to, to add more value onto what these fishermen, fishermen are, are leveraging each and every day. Like these boats ultimately are investments. These working waterfronts are investments and the more, the more utilization of the capacity of those types of investments that you can ultimately see towards will we'll create more, more of a, a balanced economy, a more of a durable economy so that throughout these types of economic challenges and spikes and troughs and landings, like there's just a more sustainable business model going forward.
The overall goal of the partnership between Luke's Lobster and the Island Institute is to provide access to the sometimes impossible to navigate seafood supply chain through the e-commerce site, to provide accessibility and traceability to everyday consumers. But the site and the partnership provide other outcomes too. Supporting sustainable fisheries beyond lobster and crab gives fishermen options for resiliency in the face of changes that are happening along our coastline and in Gulf of Maine waters. Organizationally, we're taking as a given that the rate of change that communities are going to be experienced is going to increase and become more dramatic. And so what are the kind of skill sets that need to be developed kind of in our coastal leaders and in the business sector and in all these different ways that are going to allow us? I mean, what is resilience? For me, the simplest definition is it's the ability and skill to respond effectively to change. For this project and for the Island Institute, you know, this is fundamental to building resilient communities because it opens up new channels, new markets, new ways of thinking about and doing business, all of which will prepare people for the unknown that lies ahead. Um, And I think we're modeling that in our own behavior in this partnership by looking outside of a silo of the nonprofits or private and showing that, you know, we can be more resilient together even. Building a resilient marine economy is one goal of the partnership between Luke's Lobster and the Island Institute. And to achieve that goal, the partnership is working to adapt to the changing climate and come up with innovative climate solutions. For Sam Belknap, Senior Community Development Officer at the Island Institute, that's one of the most exciting outcomes of the work that his organization and Luke's Lobster are embarking on. There's no reason why the marine sector in Maine cannot lead as uh, on the climate change front from a mitigation standpoint, from an adaptation standpoint. But it's going to take some forward-thinking individuals to go out on the limb and to test some of our assumptions and to pilot some work. And, and Luke's and their team represents just one such business where they're willing to take a risk and see like, well, let's see how we can minimize our impact on the climate. Um, And if it has business benefits, that's great, but that's not going to be our driving motivation behind it. We're going to do it for the good of the planet um, because the resource that we we make our money off of is intimately impacted by climate change. So if we can do our part um, in starting to pave the way for the lobster fishery to to fully decarbonize and lower its, its greenhouse gas emissions and its, and its kind of climate impact, then, then all the better. Um, So we're thrilled to see this partnership come to fruition with that kind of goal in mind. Luke's Lobster is a certified B Corps, which means that the business balances profit and purpose. That ethos is directly tied into the e-commerce site and the work that Luke's is doing with the Island Institute. In addition to supporting a diversification of Maine's marine economy, they're also working to reduce carbon emissions in the lobster fishery and pilot projects at their processing plant that reduce energy consumption. How can we have what our communities have always had in spirit? Um, How can we put into practice the sustainability that we need to see as coastal communities and the resilience that coastal communities just represent um, by the sheer fact that they've been here and weathered many a storm and transitioned themselves uh, uh, time and time again. When we look at a company like Luke's Lobster and their holistic approach to uh, providing sustainable seafood and providing outlets for new types of seafood and by diversifying markets for fishing families and fishing communities, 
it represents a new way of doing business that we need to see more of along the coast. I, I think there's been a hesitancy to think about what the coast could be in 10, 15, 20 years beyond what it has been in the past. And I think this collaboration is like one of the first steps in helping to co-create what that future looks like by connecting uh, nonprofit work, by connecting private business, private sector business around a way of being and a way of doing business that we want that we want to see on the coast in the future. To face the future head on can be pretty terrifying. It's uncertain, it's unpredictable. But if the last year and a half taught us anything, it's that we are already living in an unpredictable, unsteady world. The lessons of the pandemic will, I hope, lead to more innovation in creating sustainable and resilient coastal and island communities here in Maine. It's clear that supporting the marine economy and the people who work and live in these communities will not always have easy, straightforward solutions. It will require collaboration, partnership, and coordination between nonprofits, for-profits, and even regulatory agencies. By working together, we can create and support sustainable supply chains, sustainable fisheries, and sustainable communities here in Maine. That was the first in today's two-story episode of Coastal Conversations here on WERU Community Radio. These two stories featuring Maine sustainable seafood come from the Island Institute podcast called From the Sea Up, produced by Galen Koch of the First Coast. For our second story, we're jumping into the Maine scallop fishery. Just in time, too, to whet your holiday seafood appetite as the 2021-22 scallop fishing season is upon us. Here again is Galen Koch getting us started with a trip scallop fishing at the end of last year's season. This week, I want to take you back a few months to the middle of March 2021, which is just about the tail end of Maine's scallop fishing season. On one cold March morning, I woke at 3 a.m. to beat the light and drove from Portland to Tenants Harbor to meet Dan Miller. I am a lobster fisherman and a scallop fisherman, also a real estate agent and a DJ, but primarily fishing is my business. I met Dan at the Tenants Harbor Fishermen's Co-op. Dan's family has owned this wharf since the 1970s. I could make an entire podcast episode about the Miller family, their wharf, and the Fisherman's Co-op, but this episode of From the Sea Up is all about Gulf of Maine scallops. And so I met Dan on that cold March morning to head out into Penobscot Bay to drag for scallops. I think it's going to be a nice day. A little warmer than it was yesterday. By the time we motored out to fishing vessel Julianne at 6 a.m., the horizon was a brilliant salmon pink. F.V. Julianne is owned by Dan's brother, Tad. But for the duration of Maine's scalloping season, from December to March, Dan runs the boat with his crew, Ramey Upham and Jamie Kaiser. On the day I joined the crew, Jamie was on vacation in Florida, so Dan's grandson, Silas Miller, was helping out. The crew stays out in the bay until they either fill their scallop quota or the seas become too rough for the drag. If you've never seen a boat rigged for scallop dragging, I'll attempt now, with the help of Dan, to describe it to you. The F.E. Julianne has metal frames affixed to the stern, where the drag rig is pulled on and off the boat. Stretching overhead are cables and wires, an intricate pulley system that hauls the drag back into the boat with the push of a button. We fish a seven-foot wide drag. It's a heavy, heavy steel drag that's 
probably weighs somewhere near 2,000 pounds. It's called a chain sweep because the sweep on it goes, there's two shoes that hold the drag on the bottom, but then there's chains that go in kind of a half moon shape behind that drag, and the rings are all attached to that chain setup. The ring bag, the part of the drag that catches and holds the scallops, has four-inch rings that allow undersized scallops to filter through and return to the sea floor. Those half-moon-shaped chains kick up the scallops, and the scallops can swim. They can swim quite well, and they can actually move. If you get a storm, they can move a long way. It's uh, just like the bye-bye-bye thing in the song. Once we get out into Penobscot Bay, Dan lowers the drag, and the scalloping really begins. 20 fathom. 25. This is also when I started to become queasy, not only because there is a fair bit of swell that morning, but also when the drag is set, the boat stays in a pretty small area. We were essentially doing wide donuts on a rocky sea. After about 20 minutes of these topsy-turvy circles, Dan and the crew are ready to bring the drag back onto the boat. They call it hauling back when you bring the drag back. And you dump your scallops on deck. The crew sorts the scallops, throwing back the undersized animals and empty shells and rocks that get caught in the drag. And they take them in and do. Some boats have cutting houses, some don't. Fishing vessel Julianne has a cutting house. It's a small shack on the side of the boat with windows that face the sea and a tiny rectangular hole where the meat and shells of the scallop get thrown back to the ocean and to the gulls. You have to cut the meat of the scallop out of the, out of the shell. What people eat is the muscle that makes the shell open and close. You know, the, the innards, the, the guts, and the shells are thrown overboard and all is kept is the scallop. You have to have somebody that's good at cutting the scallops so they don't cut, they don't waste that meat, they don't cut halfway through it and leave part of it on the shell and throw it overboard. Ramey Upham is, in my humble opinion, an expert scallop cutter. He's dexterous and quick, cutting away the meat and shell in one swift, calculated movement, leaving the sweet abductor muscle, the part most Americans eat, unscathed. From what I hear, that's what you want in a shucker. I do this in the winter because I like it. I could stay right in the shop all winter and paint buoys, but I'd be crawling the walls. In Maine's scallop fishery, the bivalves must be shucked at sea. Scallops retain biotoxins in their meat, so the meat and shells are discarded, leaving only the cream-colored, toxin-free abductor muscle. Once the scallops are shucked, they're placed in white five-gallon buckets. The crew will fill three buckets and head back to shore, their quota met for the day. Which could take anywhere from an hour to all day. Um, early in the season, it's usually a shorter amount of time because there's a lot of scallops, usually in the start of the season. By the end of the season, we're pretty, pretty much fishing all day. And Once we've got our limit, come back to port, then usually between Tad and I, we coordinate where we're going to sell the scallops. The scallops are sold that day by Dan and his brother Tad to restaurants, individuals, and online markets like Luke's Lobster's e-commerce site or Down East Dayboat. You may have picked up on the mention of various regulations within the scallop fishery in the state of Maine. Ring size, fishing zones, times of day, days of the year, shucking at sea, the list does go on. 
And this is what makes the Maine and Northern Gulf of Maine dayboat scallops a sustainable seafood species. But it hasn't always been this way. Most consumers might not know just how much care and consideration has gone into this particular fishery. The Maine scallop fishery has, historically, been important in the state. Maine fishermen have spent winters diving or dragging for scallops as part of their seasonal income since the late 1800s. For Tad and Dan Miller, scalloping was just one in a patchwork of fisheries. I was fishing for fish, I was scalloping, I was lobstering, everything had its season. And we, we moved from one season to another a lot. You know, I dragged for shrimp in the winter, or I dragged for scallops, or I fished for lobsters in the summer and the fall. And in the spring I fished for fish, spring and early summer. So for me it was a multi-fishery. I, I, everything had its season. And, you know, I did them all. Everything had its season. If you grew up in Maine, this is a familiar story. Fishermen and fishing communities often reference a time not too long ago when there were many diverse fisheries along Maine's coast. Here's Dan's brother, Tad Miller. Well, when I first got out of high school, I went scalloping with my brother Peter. Um, and we did a lot of things seasonally back then. It was... What, whatever kind of was in season. It, you know, lobstering wasn't as dominant as it is now. Um, you know, we went lobstering, we go scalloping, we go uh, shrimping during the winter, or ground fishing, depending on what was going on. Ground fishing mostly in the spring through the early part of the summer, and then, you know, we'd usually change back over to lobstering for a while. Maine's fisheries have changed over the years, especially in the last three decades. As fish stocks collapsed and regulations tightened, many fisheries have either disappeared or become impossible to enter. And in the early 2000s, it really seemed like Maine's scallop fishery was going to be just another in a long list of disappearing industries. Now, I don't want to overstate this, but there is one name that comes up a lot when people talk about the dayboat scallop fishery in the Gulf of Maine. And that name is Togue Braun. So my name is Togue Braun. I run a company called Down East Dayboat. I ship the best scallops on the planet uh, around the country within 24 hours of harvest. And I'm actually shipping other products as well now. But the star of my show is and always will be delicious Maine scallops. Um, my background actually is fisheries management. I, it's my background and it's my passion. I, I manage the scallop fishery. Uh, in the state of Maine for a number of years, really from 2007 to 2011. In that time, implemented or helped to implement, I didn't do it unilaterally, obviously, but helped to implement a number of changes to the way the state of Maine manages the scallop fishery. It had been depleted, over-harvested, I mean, frankly, for a number of years, and we needed to put in some pretty drastic um, regulatory changes in order to bring it back, which we did. And the fishery is now rebounding. Fisheries management is a beast to comprehend. There are different regulations for federal fisheries, zones, states, and of course, countries. Scallop stocks can be abundant in one area, like say, in federal waters three miles offshore, and overfished in other areas. In the late 1990s and into the early 2000s, that was exactly what happened. Federal regulators closed fishing areas to ground fishing, 
And although that didn't bring back groundfish, the closures did, amazingly, revive the depleted scallop stock in federal waters. But by 2005, Maine's scallop fishery was bringing in just 33,141 pounds of scallop meat, down from just over 1.5 million pounds in 1991. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org. Please note that today's show was pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls. Today, we're featuring a couple of stories from the Island Institute podcast series called From the Sea Up, highlighting sustainable Maine seafood, including a special focus in the second half of the hour on scallops. Next up is Tog Braun of Downey Stayboat explaining how, when she was working for the Maine Department of Marine Resources, they worked with the scallop industry to devise management approaches that would ultimately help bring the Maine scallop population back up. And so that was one of the things that we looked at in the state of Maine. We said, okay, we look offshore and we see that this resource has been brought back. And what I ended up doing is I had a, a, a number of meetings up and down the coast and spoke with the guys about what we should do. And they, I said, I want all your ideas, like throw all your ideas up there. And we ended up settling on three, um, reducing the season length, closures and enhancement. Um, and closures are really the ones, that, what worked the best um, because we closed large areas of the coast and in so doing brought, you know, allowed those scallops that were there to reproduce and that, and that really made a huge difference. The scallop fishery was not doing real well, so they changed their management scheme and they divided it into three areas. Zone one, zone two, and zone three. Zone three being Cobbscook Bay. Cobbscook Bay is far down east, tucked between Lubeck, Eastport, Pembroke, and surrounding towns. And they have their own specific rules for Cobbscook Bay, their own specific limit, the days of the week that they can fish. In the weeks, you know, so many days a year they can fish. Zone one, where we are here, the line kind of is just to the east of where we're sitting here in Tennis Harbor, between here and Vinyl Haven. And we have a 60-day season, and we have a three-bucket limit, which is 135 pounds, versus Cobbscook, which has a two-bucket limit of 90 pounds. But I primarily fished in zone two, where they decided they'd go on rotational closures. In other words, they'd open an area up one year out of every three. So the next year will be the west side of Vinyl Haven. Last year was the east side of Vinyl Haven. The previous year before that was above North Haven. And all the way from here, from Vinyl Haven to almost Cobbscook Bay, almost the, a good chunk of the coast is in rotational closures. So this year there's this area, this area, and this area open, and next year there's that area, that area, and that open, and there's two areas in between them closed. The idea of rotational closures is to allow the juvenile scallops to grow bigger and to allow for scallops to reach reproductive age. A female scallop can produce hundreds of millions of eggs per year, so rotational closures yield results quickly. The species reproduces at such a rate that fishermen can see a return on their conservation investments within a few years. In general, it's difficult to impose new regulations on an industry. It can be costly for fishermen, and regulations are complex. For Tad Miller, 
The change to the scallop fishery was also a cultural shift. Back in the day when I broke in, economics dictated. You fished by economics. When you couldn't make any money anymore, it didn't mean that the fishery, that there wasn't a fishery. It just wasn't economically viable. So that's been kind of the change over the course of my fishing career. We've moved more towards a management process. And it hasn't been easy. It hasn't been easy for guys from my generation that were used when I came up. You didn't have to... You didn't have to think about what you just, if you wanted to try something, you went and did it. That, that's all it took. You went and bought a license for that particular, particular fishery, and you went. If you made money, you kept doing it. If you didn't, you stopped. So it was a simpler way of doing business. And it's, it's, a, it's a lot harder in that sense now. Um, but I see the other side of it, too. I think there's benefits of management and... Hopefully you're, uh, you're utilizing your resource in a smarter, better way. We've gone now to a four-inch ring um, back a few years ago, and I think that's definitely having, a, having an effect. It's, at least it's helped keeping your seed scallops on the bottom until they uh, can spawn out and whatnot. Uh, so I think you got a little better setup as far as the animal itself sustaining itself. You know, it's like I said, I mean, we all, as fishermen, we always have our gripes about the way it's managed and we always have our own opinions. Uh, it's just not an easy thing to do. You're trying to manage something that you can't see. You don't know what your impact is, you know. It's just, it's not an easy thing. Despite those gripes, scallop conservation efforts in Maine and the northern Gulf of Maine have yielded results. In 2020, Maine's scallop fishery brought in over 658,000 pounds of meat, up from that dismal 33,000 pounds in 2005. And there has been a shift, I believe, in the scallop fishery in Maine, where previously, when there weren't very many regulations and the fishery was kind of in the toilet, guys were like, eh, whatever, I'll take, the, I'll take those small scallops, you know. And now they sort of see that the, there, there is a respect for the resource, there's a respect for the sustainability, um, and they're not breaking the regulations as much. And, and that's, that continues to evolve. And so that's something that I find fascinating as a fisheries manager is if you take care and you manage the resource the way it should be and, and people start to respect the rules, it's sort of a positive feedback loop. The scallop industry in Maine accounts for 1% of the U.S. scallop industry with 99% of scallops being caught on trip boats. In the global seafood supply chain, those trip boats are necessary. But there is a big difference between a scallop that's caught on one of those trip boats that stays out at sea for 10 or more days, and a scallop that's caught, sold, and consumed or frozen in less than 24 hours. For Togue Braun, differentiating between those two fisheries was critical to sustaining Maine's scallop industry. And at a meeting in Jonesport, I remember it well, um, Morris Alley said, you know, Togue, I wouldn't mind lowering the, the catch limit, which is the amount of scallops that they can bring in, the guys can bring in each day, if I knew what I was going to get paid for my catch. But I never know what I'm going to get paid. And it, I had sort of an Oprah aha moment then of why is Morris Alley that is coming in with 80 pounds of scallops that he harvested, you know, a mile offshore or even less than that 
four hours ago. Why is his price being set by the offshore fishery, which is huge compared to the main fishery, where boats are at sea for 10 days at a time sometimes, and they store their scallops in cloth bags uh, buried in ice, and the ice melts and the scallops absorb it. So basically, the price for his artisanal, perfect, fresh, plump, sustainable main scallop was being set by this vastly inferior product. And so for a number of years, I actually tried to get some dealers in Maine to do what I thought needed to be done, which was to focus on highlighting the superior the superiority of Maine scallops. And no one did it, so I quit my job and I started doing it myself. So that's what my, my company does, Down East Day Boat. I, I'm on a mission to show the world what scallops are supposed to taste like, and they're supposed to taste like Maine scallops. Moving from fisheries management to selling dayboat scallops was, for Togue, in line with the same effort she was working on in the DMR. By creating demand for the fresh, off-the-boat taste of a dayboat scallop, fishermen would, in turn, get more money per pound for their catch. There's an educational component there where if you've never tasted a main dayboat scallop that is properly handled, you don't realize that level of flavor and texture and deliciousness exists. Um, it's like if all you've ever had is like a rock hard pink strawberry and then suddenly you taste that like just picked like soft, juicy, exquisite strawberry, you're never gonna go back to the other kind. But if you've never tasted that red one, then you're not gonna pay extra for it because you, your, your mind can't capture that there's that, that, that level of deliciousness exists. I grew up in Stonington, Maine, and I remember my parents getting 15 or 20 pounds of fresh dayboat scallops from local fishermen each winter. We'd pack them in plastic freezer bags and thaw fresh, frozen scallops to eat on hot August days with lobster and corn. The best way to get seafood is directly from the fishermen. There's, I mean, you grew up in Stonington, you know that. I try not to sell too much in Maine because I don't want to compete with my fishermen. People in Maine should be buying directly from the fishermen if, if they can. They can't always do that, but if you can, buy direct. Access to high-quality off-the-boat seafood isn't possible for everyone in Maine or around the country. This is one of the reasons that online markets like Luke's Lobster's e-commerce site and Downey's Dayboat are so exciting. If you can't get that scallop on the same day it was caught, on a wharf or in a seafood market, then you can buy fresh from Togue or Flash Frozen from Luke's, and you can be sure that product was bought directly from fishermen. It's worth mentioning here that when it comes to eating sustainable seafood, traceability is key. A fishmonger or online market should be able to identify where your seafood was caught and preferably who caught it. There's a ton of information about the various types of scallop fisheries on Downey's Dayboat's website. And on the site, Togue points out that fraud is, unfortunately, common in seafood supply chains. I can't get into the nitty-gritty in this 30-minute podcast, but buying from reputable and trustworthy sources is really important if what you care about is high-quality, high-value products that support local communities. And for fishermen like Dan Miller and his crew, Maine scallops are a reliable, stable, and marketable product and provide an opportunity to diversify beyond lobster. You know, scallops are very marketable. They're all meat. There isn't any waste. So I, you know, I don't see anything but positive for the scallops right now. It's not, you know, it doesn't mean it's going to be a gold mine because it isn't. But it's a good 
off-season fishery when you're not lobstering and you're making money every, you know they're making something every single week if you can get out and for a lot of Maine families that's a big deal just to have something coming in when there wasn't there's no shrimp season right now so scallops is other than lobster scallops is a is the winter time thing that's it there's a lot of power in what we choose to buy from the clothes we wear to the groceries and produce we consume. Here's Tad Miller. When you're buying stuff like like a, a day-caught scallop or a lobster that's coming from Maine or ground fish, it's generally a small boat fleet. You're supporting somebody and their family. It's making a big difference in their life. Uh, you know, it's, it's giving them the ability to carry on and do what they love doing and... Uh, they feel good about doing, and it's, uh, I think that's pretty, it's kind of the same idea as buying off the small family farmers. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of connectivity between the two as far as those things go, and I, you know, I think it's good. You look in the person, especially the closer you can get, you look in the person in the eye that you're buying something off of, and, you know, I, I think in general they're, they're going to try and, they, they have some pride in that. You know, they're going to try and give you a premium quality product if they can. As someone who eats seafood, I want to know that what I buy is impacting people, not corporations. I want to support owner-operator fisheries, family businesses, and fisheries that value sustainability and resource management. Those are my values as a consumer, And we all get to set our values and decide how and what we want to eat. If what you value is sustainable seafood that supports fishermen directly, then Maine day boat scallops are a great choice. But there's another reason to eat Maine scallops, and that's just, frankly, because they are exquisitely, mouthwateringly delicious. Scallops are an easy way, if people want to eat more seafood, scallops are a great way to start. The stuff that you're going to get from reputable producers that are that are dealing in Maine dayboat scallops, like Down East Dayboat, like Luke Lobster, like a number of others, it's a great way to start because you can pan sear it and there's going to be no fishy smell. Like you're not going to stink up your kitchen. You're actually going to make your kitchen smell great because it's got these nice, you know, caramelization on the outside of the scallop when you're getting truly dry scallops. It actually it put it in butter and bacon fat and it, it produces like a caramel butterscotchy smell in your kitchen. So it's a great way to start. You can't really screw them up as long as you don't overcook them. And as long as you err on the underside, because they're amazing raw, you know, you you can't go wrong. Maine scallops are the best scallops in the world, bar none. Both of our stories today on Coastal Conversations were produced by Galen Koch of the First Coast as part of the Island Institute podcast called From the Sea Up. And we're thrilled to announce that we'll be featuring more of these great stories in upcoming episodes of Coastal Conversations. I mentioned at the top of the hour that a lot of folks were involved in producing these stories, and we wanted to make sure to thank them all. So here goes. First, the From the Sea Up podcast series is presented by the Island Institute and produced by Galen Koch of the First Coast. The stories are made possible by the Fund for Maine Islands and a partnership between the Island Institute, College of the Atlantic, Luke's Lobster, Maine Sea Grant, and the First Coast. For our first story today, thanks goes to 
Rob Snyder, Luke Holden, Ben Conniff, Merritt Carey, and Sam Belknap. For the second story, thanks go to Togue Braun, Dan Miller, Tad Miller, Merritt Carey, Ramey Upham, and Silas Miller. If you're interested in learning more about how to purchase local sustainable seafood for the holidays, you can check out the online markets lukeslobster.com and downeastayboat.com, both of which were talked about in today's stories. And finally, extra gratitude goes to Galen Koch, the producer of these stories, for helping us get them on the air on Coastal Conversations here at WERU Community. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. The Coastal Conversations theme music of Following Sea was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good weekend. <laughs>